Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be having a conversation with my colleague Cameron Cote, who works with the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform in Calgary, Alberta. He's the co-host of a fantastic new podcast called The Pro-Life Guys, where he and his co-host Peter Boss provide really incredible training on how to talk about abortion in your day-to-day life, how to have conversations about the subject wherever you are, how to essentially take somebody who's pro-choice or a soft or dormant pro-lifer and turn them into somebody who knows how to have conversations that will save lives. Now, a lot of you will know that I work full-time in the pro-life movement. We've had a lot of discussions on this podcast with pro-life activists who have shared incredible stories of cultures changing, of babies saving, being saved, pardon me. But one of the things that a lot of people have asked is, well, well, where would we go if we want to get trained? Where would we go if we want to have those conversations uh, that some of your guests have been having? And so I want to introduce you today to uh, Cameron Cote of the Pro-Life Guys podcast. We're going to talk a lot about how he got involved in the movement, how he became somebody who trains young people on how to have these discussions and where you can find that training online so that you can begin having those conversations yourself. Well, just to start off, Cam, why don't you uh, tell our our listeners a little bit about how you went from somebody who was going for a career in academia to somebody who ended up full-time in the pro-life movement, and I believe that next year will be a full decade of full-time work. Is that right? It's a true story. Yeah, 10 years of doing this, um, which is pretty crazy to think because I, well, I can't say that I came kicking and screaming into the pro-life movement. I definitely did not foresee this in any capacity. Um, I wish that I had some glorious revelation of the atrocity of abortion and I, I came willingly. Um, but really my start in the pro-life movement came from a massive guilt trip from somebody at my university, University of Victoria. I was studying a biology degree there. Um, and I signed up for the pro-life club so that they would have enough members to get ratified. Um, and I got guilt tripped into that. I didn't attend a single meeting. And then I was studying for one of my math courses for a final exam. And I was just making small talk with one of my classmates. And she asked me if I was involved with any clubs on campus. And I told her that I was in on the, the squash club, the badminton club, and the pro-life club. And she gave me this weird look and said, uh, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean? And and she said, well, I'm the vice president of the pro-life club and I've never seen you before. Um, you better <laughs> put up or shut up sort of thing. And so I, I got involved in, in the pro-life group that way. And again, I was planning on having a peripheral role, you know, I show up to the odd meeting just so that I can um, make an appearance and, and move on with my life. I was getting further and further into a, a route to go into academia. And then Stephanie Gray Connors, um, founder of CCBR, came and did a debate and blew my mind. And after that, it was a very textbook sort of thing. I saw the reality of what abortion did. And I realized that, that you know, the next step is to go down to Florida. You get that mission trip mentality out of you. It's kind of like your, your African mission trip. You get that picture and you go back to regular life. Um, but I couldn't go back to regular life after that. And I said, okay, well, maybe I, maybe I, I just haven't quite satisfied my, my pro-life um, requirement yet. I did an internship in 2012 during the, we did the new abortion caravan. And I realized that, this was something that you could actually make change. You could actually change people's minds on abortion. And not only could you you change the odd person's mind here and there, but we went from city to city to city, seeing huge numbers of people change their minds. And so 
I had a master's degree lined up at the University of Victoria. I was planning on going into academia with um, a, a focus in adult stem cell research. I've got a degree in genetics um, from UVic. And that all kind of came crashing down once I realized that the training that I had gotten from CCBR, I'm going to say even at that point, because though CCBR was a wonderful organization at that point, it certainly matured and developed a lot since then. Um, but I realized that I had had the opportunity, I've been blessed with such incredible training that I was in a position to actually help other people change minds on abortion that this wasn't just something that I could do as a hobby anymore. It was something that I actually had to dedicate my life to because um, babies were dying. Babies were dying day after day. And I was meeting the people who had chosen to kill their children, meeting the people who were just like me, normal people. These weren't maniacal, demonic people who just wanted to kill as many babies as they could. They were down to earth people that just were terrified or ignorant or all these different things. And realizing that I could actually make a, a difference until I signed my contract and uh, my parents and so many others thought that this would be a, a one-year gig or maybe a two-year gig but here I am nine years later I'm still working it still loving what I'm doing still um, seeing people change their mind and and more and more now I guess um, seeing people get trained on how to change other people's minds on the abortion issue. I'm going to back up a little bit here. So for, for the listeners who aren't aware of, of a few of the things we referred to, the Florida trip is a once a year pre-pandemic, that is, thing that um, we at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform do, where we take a whole bunch of students from the frozen tundra every February. We go to a whole bunch of campuses in Florida, and we debate abortion for two weeks in the sun. A lot of people who would not otherwise get involved in the pro-life movement sign up for the sunshine and then end up staying to do pro-life work because it's such a formative experience. It was for me, too. I went the year before before you did in 2010. And that was really a deal breaker for me too. I had originally been planning my master's and then <laughs> had my life hijacked by the pro-life movement as well. And in the caravan, some of uh, some of you might know that in 1970, there was an abortion caravan across Canada by abortion activists who were seeking to, at that point, decriminalize abortion. And in 2012, a whole group of young Canadian pro-lifers retraced their steps across the country and it really was it really was an incredible experience to see people change their minds from from Vancouver all the way to Ottawa and starting back in British Columbia again because that's where you're from you're from the island and I'm from the Fraser Valley and Vancouver has has often been a quite an unpleasant place to do pro life activism you'll remember on the caravan we had somebody smash our truck window with a bike lock we had our truck blockaded off by a whole bunch of protesters on on Robson Street and um, before we get more into a lot of the work that you do with young people uh, every day and, and the podcast you're part of and, and all of that, I want to kind of back up to, to you, Vic, because uh, even when, when I was at university and I was at Simon Fraser University, which is known as one of the most left wing campuses in the country, right? The, the big claim to fame was that the abortion caravan left with Simon Fraser University and SFU was the campus that the underground abortion network operated from prior to decriminalization in 1969. And UVic was known as more liberal than the campus I went to. I think the big thing, I think the big thing when I was a student is didn't they ban McLean's magazine for an article that said Asians were smart or something yep. like that? Um, and I seem to remember the club that you were part of um, getting all kinds of persecution, getting targeted nonstop. And, did, and I think you guys had feces chucked at you at one point what was it like to be a pro-life activist at uvic because you're saying you were so encouraged by seeing minds change but you know an outside observer might wonder what sort of encouraging things happen for a pro-lifer at uvic 
Yeah, so it UVic was such a wild spot. Uh, like you mentioned, that it was known for McLean's Magazine. They banned the Settlers of Catan Club on campus because it promoted colonialism, things like that, that, that were just absolutely nonsensical. And so you had this radical, radical um, pro-abortion wing. One of the students um, who led the pro-abortion club on campus actually received the Rhodes Scholarship for her work in developing a network of campus support groups to uh, kind of oppose pro-life initiatives and whatnot. Um, and so you had that faction of people that we would have regular confrontations with, not only during our pro-life outreach that we were doing. Um, I remember after after doing this Florida mission trip for the first time, between every single one of my classes, I would have a stack of CCBR pamphlets and I would just pamphlet for like five or 10 minutes. I'd get into one conversation, maybe two conversations, talk to people. Um, and they were always very quick to, to fire up and, and find us on campus and try to shut us down and whatnot. And so I, I've i learned basically all of Robert's rules based on my the number of student society um, board meetings that I went to to try to keep our club ratified and funding and all this kind of stuff. They um, threatened to ban us from campus. We had a legal case, youth protecting youth against University of Victoria. But on the other end, there were a lot of very reasonable people at UVic as well. And, and I find that when the pro-abortion movement polarizes them to such a brutal degree, when they are willing to go out and, as you mentioned, throw um, animal feces at the pro-life club club's table, it's not like we were even doing anything controversial. We had a couple of fetal models and a progression of, of human development on our club state table trying to get signups and they throw um, kitty litter with feces in it at our table and stuff like that. When the pro-abortion movement is so polarizing like that, it, it shows just how normal pro-lifers really are that how are we the ones viewed as radicals, not only for our worldview that it's wrong to kill innocent humans to solve problems, but also the fact that we are generally very good at keeping our clothing on and very good at not throwing feces or stink bombs at other people during their presentations. Stink bombs. That's a reference to, didn't they set them off during a debate? What was that again? So two things on the stink bombs. So they happened during a presentation that we gave, but it also happened. So the first time we ever did one of CCBR's projects, Choice Chain on campus, we did a two day event, six hours each day of Choice Chain, which is a three foot by four foot sign that shows the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child. We couple that with prenatal images and whatnot. We had seven or eight signs out on campus. We did it for the first time, I want to say in 2011. And two days of six hours each. And I was at the display for all but about 15 minutes of those 12 total hours. And during those 15 minutes, we had eight stink bombs thrown at us. We had many backpacks um, stolen and people were throwing stuff at us. I, I have no idea what it was that, that rallied people in the 15 minutes that I was gone to try to cram for an exam that I had later that week. Um, but stink bombs thrown at people, thrown on people's belongings that were packed behind the choice chain display. It also happened in one of our presentations as well um, that we were doing. I can't remember exactly which presentation it was, but just in an attempt for people to not come around. It wasn't even to deter us. It was to, to deter an audience. And I think that's an important note for a lot of people to realize. And I'm sure we'll get into this in just a moment. But how the pro-abortion movement wins is not through argumentation. The pro-abortion movement, as we realized at UVic, wins by preventing people from talking to us, by shutting down the conversation, by stopping the debate from happening. They've realized that they don't have winning arguments. They've realized that they don't have logic or even intuition on their side. All they have on their side is brute strength, arguably, to 
prevent people from interacting with pro-lifers. The more people interact with more, with pro-lifers, the more often they become pro-life themselves. And so that that's a, a major lesson that we learned from you, Vic, I guess. Now, it's kind of interesting because just to, so we had a couple of episodes on the podcast. We had uh, Gwen Landel to, of Real Women, one of the veterans of the pro-life movement. And one of the things um, I've been doing, and I've talked about this with you before too, is kind of looking at the history of the Canadian movement so that people who are coming into the pro-life movement have an idea of what this backlash to first decriminalization in 1969 and then later um, um, total legalization in 1988 has, has looked like. And it's interesting to me to look at the, the last 10 years. And obviously the last 10 years have been interesting uh, because we've been, we've been both collectively part of an organization that's triggering an educational movement across Canada, showing millions of people the truth about abortion in a, in a really graphic and controversial way. Um, I don't think it should be controversial because if the government's funding it and supporting it, then why, why do they so badly want to avoid seeing it? But what's interesting to me about the period where both you and I were on campus in Canada is that that has been the period in which there was the most violent and craziest pushback, and yet the highest number of people who left university and joined the pro-life movement full-time instead of pursuing their other plans was the direct result, in my mind at least, as best as I can theorize it, as the result of that pushback, right? So at, at University of British Columbia, um, we had, well, Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada lives nearby, so she would always sort of man a huge protest there. We fought in court on that campus and won, but like naked people would show up. Even in the in the cold, I was impressed by the dedication, if not the tactic. Um, you know, you, Vic, you just went through all the things that you explained. They tried to decertify that. Uh, some of our, our later colleagues, but at the time, just fellow activists got arrested at Carleton University for trying to set up a display. Uh, at, at the University of Calgary, um, I got charged with trespassing a couple of times. I think most most of the pro-lifers I know who've been in the movement for, for 10 years at some point got charged with trespassing at Calgary while that case was being fought. And of course, that case we later did win. And we would go there like clockwork to set up on campus every, every or sorry, uh, every, every semester, actually. Um, but what's interesting to me is, is a lot of people say, you know, you have to avoid controversy. You have to make sure uh, that students are comfortable in, in what they're doing. But like my experience is that, you know, like, well, half of the major organizations in the country are staffed by people who faced massive pushback on campus. It solidified their convictions, solidified their beliefs, solidified their willingness to fight back. And as a result, they abandoned other plans and joined the pro-life movement. And you could actually argue that a, a decent chunk of the educational organizations, at least, wouldn't, wouldn't exist in their current form if the attempts at censorship and the attempts at shutdown had, hadn't been so egregious. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is something that we saw, yeah, when, when we were at campus time and time again, and it just caused us and forced us in many ways to dig in our heels and say, not only like our, our voices are not just our own, our voices are those of the preborn child. And so I feel like all of the, the fighting to prevent our voices from being shared really helped us with perspective and realizing just how dependent preborn children were on us. And if, if we simply rolled over, if we simply said, okay, well, I, I guess I'll go back to my badminton club then, um, then it's not us who loses out. It, it, there's many different things that I could do on a Friday afternoon sort of thing. There's very few things that a child being led to the slaughter could do without a voice like ours, without the voices of the courageous people like you've mentioned across the country. And so I feel like it was that that kind of crucible of 
of intensity that really fired a lot of people's passion for the cause because they realized in a more tangible way than than often other people do just what we're up against as much as the the forces that we're fighting are not the individual members of the student societies and and presidents of the university it did put a very clear representation of the people who are desperately clinging to abortion and just how wounded our culture was and so it it showed us just how urgent our action was and just what would happen if we didn't stand up that this wasn't just about us and arguably it wasn't just about the preborn children but we saw what happened and and i i admire the work that they did and i know that it's not as simple as was often portrayed in in the news that we were reading but i remember there's a club at mcgill university that in some ways, it, it looked like they did roll over. It looked like they did assure the, the campus that they weren't going to bring controversial speakers like CCBR back to their campus. And we saw how their club basically disappeared after that until there were a few people who took a stand and said, no, we're going to fight this. We're going to stand up for our rights. We're going to stand up for the rights of preborn children in doing so. And their club exploded again. I, I think about the recruitment campaigns that we had at UVic that, um, like I mentioned, when I first got involved, they could barely get the 10 people together that were required to ratify the club. When we first had our funding stripped from us, we had over 150 people join the club the next semester. After that, they tried to ban us as a club entirely. We had over 500 people register for the club. They realized that this was something of substance. They saw that the dedication of the pro-lifers, that the people that were not willing to bend or break in the face of adversity, it steeled them and they saw how people rallied around them. They saw how people responded to the arguably, I mean, it's difficult to call it injustice, especially when you compare it to what's happening to preborn children, a, a true injustice like that, when they're seeing the discrimination towards pro-lifers and free speech and the willingness of pro-lifers who weren't particularly eloquent, who weren't particularly um, fantastic in any particular way, but were simply willing to endure whatever it took to be able to continue standing up for preborn children. It, it really inspired a lot of people. And I think that People, Jonathan, I, I'm sure that, that it, it was something for you, but I, I know that it is for many people of that era, they saw not only the impact that they could have in the abortion conversation, but how they could inspire and mobilize other people around them who held the pro-life worldview simply by showing that with a little bit of courage, with a little bit of bravery, you could do something very, very profound, I guess. Yeah, I've, I've often thought that there's the way we as pro-life people respond to abortion is also, I think, educational in and of itself to the culture. Because if we say abortion kills babies and therefore we should have a pizza evening and listen to Taylor Swift and <laughs> discuss how we're pro-life, right? Like the campus has no problem with that. You're not bothering anyone. You're not changing anyone's mind. You're not dissuading anybody. You're not making anybody uncomfortable. And so sometimes, like I've I've said before, if, if every if everybody in the culture acted about abortion the way pro-life people do, would it make any difference to the babies? Which is to say, you know, if abortion is, is murder, we, we should act like abortion is murder because maybe people are taking their cues from us. And a pro-life club that's, you know, <laughs> a pro-life club that's dedicated to just saying life is beautiful and other uncontroversial things is just quite simply not going to be of any use to babies who are at risk of being killed in clinics in major cities, which isn't to say that there's anything wrong with what they're doing. It's just to say that they're not doing anything that will effectively save lives if that's the point of the organization to begin with. And that 
that for me, and I know this was, as I, I talked to you when you when you first got involved, I know that it was the case for you too, is it was also very empowering to realize that something could be done. Because I feel like so many issues in the culture war and in this culture in particular, you know, a, a generation or two into the post-Christian era, a generation or two into the post-modern era, a lot of people are very fatalistic that anything can be done at all. And, you know, I've, I've had so many podcast conversations with different people who have different analyses about what can be done about issue X, Y, or Z. But on the abortion issue, uh, we know for a fact that things can be done every day that has a real life impact on, on real people's lives. When you first did CCBR's internship, because you applied for staff uh, the fall following your internship, um, what were some of the experiences that you had during that summer that made you think this is actually worth pursuing full time? Because one of the things that has driven abortion activists nuts is one of the best pieces of evidence that the work that pro-life activists are doing is effective is that young people keep on deciding to pursue this as a career, which they wouldn't do if it was just a waste of time or if it was the right wing version of virtue signaling or what have you. Right. They're doing this because they know it's effective. So what were some of the experiences you had that kind of led to a cognitive shift in and abandoning your plans mm -hmm. so I, I i've talked about this on on the podcast that i help host the uh, pro-life guys podcast where winnipeg was kind of a pivotal spot for me winnipeg is such an interesting town anyways but i remember doing choice chain one of our displays in winnipeg and i talked to a couple people and and i saw them change their mind and that itself wasn't super new to me i i had spent the last kind of two and a half weeks to that point, Vancouver, Kelowna, um, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Regina, all the major stops between um, the coast and Winnipeg to that point, seeing people change their mind. And, and I was building up some momentum in seeing people change their mind. And, and that was becoming more of a norm. And I, I remember a pivotal conversation was one that I had actually with a pro-life guy who said, what are you guys doing? You are wasting your time out here. We have lost. Lick your wounds and go home and pick a different fight. Like there are other fights that we can deal with that we haven't absolutely lost. And I said, no, dude, with all due respect, I've seen dozens of people change their mind in the last two weeks. And he said, I don't believe you. And so I went out on a limb. God is good. I went out on a limb and I said, dude, stick around. Give me 15 minutes and you'll watch somebody change their mind. And he said, okay, I'll give you 15 minutes. And he sits on a, on a park bench, maybe maybe 10 strides away from where I'm at. And, and this young couple approaches me shortly thereafter. And they say, you know what? I, both of them were entirely pro-abortion. They said, it's a woman's right to choose and do whatever she wants with her body. Short conversation, walking through, can we kill innocent people to solve problems? Agreed that we have problems that need to be solved, problems that, that demand a response. Can we kill people to solve those problems? Within the span of like seven or eight minutes, those two people, young couple, changed their mind on abortion right there. And this guy bounces off of the bench and wraps both of them up in a hug. And they were super blindsided. Like they had no idea who this guy was. I barely knew who this guy was. He wraps the two of them up in a big bear hug and he says, thank you. You have just restored my hope for the pro-life movement. He gave me a big hug. I was super uncomfortable with that as well. These two people were like shell-shocked by what they had just had happen to them. The guy walks away. I mean, he wasn't quite skipping, but he was basically skipping. I, he shook hands with a bunch of people. Um, he may have even come to the presentation that we were doing that night, but like that was a pivotal moment, not only in me seeing people change their mind, but seeing that by changing people's mind, we could reinvigorate um, a huge number of people who had fought so diligently for so long with such little success, tragically, 
reinvigorate them. And I realized, okay, well, a young person can not only speak to the young people who are having abortions, right? I mean, the majority of abortions performed in Canada are performed on mothers between the ages of 18 and 24. And so somebody who's in that demographic at that time, I'm no longer within that demographic, believe it or not. Um, but in that demographic at that time, I could have a very good connection with those people. But who loves young people more than anyone? Senior citizens. And, and I love senior citizens. They are the best. And they love young people and they love seeing young people get involved. And when this fella, he, he was probably mid fifties and whatnot. So not quite a senior citizen, but when he realized that there were young people getting involved, he kind of hung his hat now on the hope of there's a resurgence of the pro-life movement. And so in some ways I felt a bit of obligation to fulfill this fella's hopes that we are actually seeing a new wave of pro-lifers come in, a new wave of pro-lifers who are effective, changing people's minds on the issue. And that was really a pivotal moment for me. And then, as I'm sure is the case for a lot of people, Greg Cunningham, founder of CBR, kind of our cousin organization in the States, not formally connected to CCBR, but, but often very well connected in, in many ways. He came up, he um, was one of the keynote speakers for the crash course that we did. Crash Course is kind of a three, four-day event where people came and, and just consolidated a lot of the pro-life training that we had received over four months of an internship into four days of very highly intensive, um, very um, in-depth coverage. And, and he kind of left us with a quote, there's more people working full-time in Canada to kill pre-born babies than there are working full-time to save pre-born babies. And I realized that there are a ton of people that would love my spot working at the University of Victoria in adult stem cell research. There's a ton of people that wanted my spot as a as a directed study student. There's a ton of people who would be very, very willing to, to fill my boots as a master's student doing that, that research that I was doing. But there's very few people who are willing to fill a role in the pro-life movement at that point. At that point, it's changing now. And, and this is something that I continues to encourage me that I'm meeting kids in high school now that are asking like, Cam, what do I do to be a, a good pro-life activist? What courses do I need to take in high school, let alone university to be a full-time pro-life activist? And I'm like, oh my goodness, this was not even in the back of my mind, let alone in the front of my mind when I was your age, like props to them. Um, seeing this new generation and how this is translated to, to younger and younger people, seeing that things are changing. You think about how many people are working in the pro-life movement now versus 10 years ago. Uh, it, it's astronomical growth. And um, spoiler alert, it's only going to um, keep growing, that, that we are only seeing more and more people apply for jobs, that no longer is it we don't have enough people to do what we need to do. We have the people. We just need to build the infrastructure around them, whether that's financial support, whether that's infrastructure of offices, things like that. We have people that, unfortunately, we at times have to turn away for our internships because we don't have the funding to be able to facilitate them. We don't have a big enough office. We don't have enough managers to be able to lead a team that large. We don't have enough vans. And so... <laughs> This the, the change over the last 10 years has been huge, but it, in a lot of ways, I trace it back to that moment of coupling. I was able, by God's grace, to see somebody change their mind on abortion. And in seeing that person change their mind, I was able to also mobilize somebody who had kind of given up hope on the pro-life movement, I guess. You know that we've been hanging over 10 years and I've never heard that story before? 
No, no, not the podcast more. I said it on the podcast three times. Most, most of that one, and I've listened, and I've actually listened. I thought to to, to mm. every single episode except for the last the last two. I have to catch up on, but that um the the version of the story about the guy jumping up and hugging had never heard yeah. okay. had never heard that before. Um, so to get to uh, the, the the pro life guys podcast, which I want to introduce any. There's a lot of listeners of this podcast have said it's so encouraging to hear you talk to pro-life activists to realize things can be done. You know, what, what can I do? And, and so um, I, I want to introduce them to, to what you and our colleague Peter Boss are doing in, in training people and essentially creating a, a virtual classroom where people can become good pro-life activists. But I want to kind of close the gap first from, you know, the guy who, who got inspired to join the pro-life movement to the guy who's hosting a podcast uh, with Peter Boss, because uh, next to uh, one of our other colleagues, I think you probably, or maybe you have the most number of, of face-to-face conversations on abortion <laughs> in the organization. It's, 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 it's like thousands and thousands of conversations. You were actually the one who broke uh, my record um, of, of most number of minds changing one day and you did it in half the time. Um, I was on campus and you were in front of a high school, but I remember when I, I remember when I got the video where you were telling the story of how many of these kids changed their minds. I was like, this is amazing. And he also beat my record now. And so you're, you're still the record holder for, for the most number of minds changed in the shortest amount of time on abortion. And so how did you get from the guy who came on staff uh, with CCBR to a guy who's now, uh, Western Outreach Director for 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 CCBR. You know, you speak you speak all across Western Canada and sometimes beyond. You've trained I don't know how many people through the Calgary office, but also uh, through your trips to to Winnipeg and and around Manitoba. Right now, you're one of the main guys in Canada who's training up uh, the next generation of activists. I hate to say generation because it makes us sound old, but you did say era, so <laughs> so <laughs> you, you can't you can't fault me too much. Um, so what, what's, what's that been like, uh, the journey from, from joining the movement to now being one of, uh, I won't say senior, but I would say one of, the, <laughs> one of the most, in terms of conversations, one of the most experienced guys in terms of training and, and raising up new activists? Yeah, so when, once I started with C-Square, when I, when I first came on, I was a, an activism coordinator. I started leading the internships back in, in 2013, my first full year on staff. I started leading internships, and I, I love people. I love interacting with people. I love talking to people and, and just trying to, um, I unfortunately, as many people are, I'm sure I, I love trying to fix problems. And so I, I love talking to people and seeing where they're at and seeing their particular situations and whatnot. And coupling that with how do we increase pro-life activists? When I came on staff in 2013, we were doing maybe a, a couple dozen choice chains a year, usually Saturday choice chains at Chinook Mall. Um, shout out to all the, the Calgarians that have done that. And, and those that have been across the country doing Chinook Mall choice chains, we're still doing them on most Saturdays. But going from a couple dozen choice chains every year to just more and more and more activism. And in, in large part, it was because I just love doing choice change so much, seeing people change their mind on abortion, just realizing in some ways, partly selfishly, how do I get myself in front of more um, high schools? How do I get myself on campus more often? This is such a rush to be able to see people change their mind, to see people become pro-life, want to get trained in pro-life outreach. And so just increasing the volume of activism, recruiting people through activism. Activism has always been our best source of recruitment, at least in Western Canada. It may be different in different parts of Canada, but we, we have had a difficult time cracking the case of churches. Christians, low-hanging fruit that, that should, in my opinion, be the first on street corners and on doorsteps. We've had such a difficult time mobilizing so many Christians 
from the vantage point of the pulpit, from the vantage point of the front of the classroom sort of thing. And so, so many of our activists have come after they met us at activism. They see us doing activism. Some of them even change their mind on abortion at activism. How do I do more? How do I actually make a difference? If this is as bad as you're saying, as you mentioned, I'm taking my cue from you that you're willing to come out here at 40 below in Calgary in a blizzard raging on. If you're willing to do this, you're serious about it. How do I get involved? And so we ended up training. I've done that and it really sucks. It it does. I, I must admit it. It's brutal. Thank goodness for um, hand warmers and foot warmers and all sorts of other things. I mean, you're bundled up so tightly that you can barely do anything. Um, but you can still talk to people about abortion. And often the good Lord just needs you to show up. It's not even the conversation so often. It's the picture itself. And yet the conversation is something that I've always had a deep passion for because it often frames a picture tells a thousand words, as we all know. And very often those thousand words can be pivotal in people's lives. And if we can build those thousand words into an entire change of worldview, then then that's our goal. And so building through the years more and more activism, more and more people who wanted to get trained in making a difference, seeing the testimonies that we put out on social media, seeing the testimonies that we have in newsletters and things like that. That's infectious. People want to be a part of that. People want to realize that they can make a difference and Part of where the podcast came from was that when I first started doing trainings, um, Jonathan, you were part of the team that was doing the public speaking training and whatnot, and you taught us how to do trainings, but I just wanted to keep packing more and more content into um, the apologetics workshops. There's so much that I wanted to communicate that I, I apologize forever to the the poor 40 Days for Life group in Victoria that had me come in and do an apologetics workshop. And it ended up being a four and a half hour workshop just of content that I wanted to convey that you've got your basic principles, you've got your human rights argument, you've got your age-based discrimination argument, you've got your bridge in the gap, you've got your core stuff that, that pro-life um, speakers from CCBR talk about all the time, but there's just so much content that you can give with regards to how do you navigate people who have had personal experiences with abortion? How do you navigate different things that have been brought up? And, and so we're looking for more and more opportunities to convey that. We've had the pro-life classroom on CCPR's website for a long time, but that was not super accessible for people who wanted to listen to content on their way to work, while they're at the gym, whatever it may be. And so we'd gotten these requests for a long time leading into the pandemic. But the pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, has really given us the opportunity to dedicate some time towards it and really hash out what does a podcast look like? How do we generate more than just three or four episodes in a way that are compelling for people that they want to tune into week over week because they're getting new information, because they're getting information in a way that they've never heard it before? And so we decided that we were going to do a podcast to try to highlight some of this and feature some of the incredible pro-life heroes that we have in Canada and around the world. And we really weren't anticipating a whole lot of response. We figured that there'd be some keeners from across Canada that we'd get a couple dozen of the pro-life leaders who tune in regularly, maybe the occasional person who would fly in for a particular episode, but not really latch onto it. And yet, um, Peter's done such a good job. The whole podcast team has done such a good job in developing this into something that Every week, we're getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of downloads. We're getting more and more people. We're getting churches and other communities wanting us to come in and do talks and, and further development. We've expanded the programming that we've had because there's a hunger for people to 
equip themselves with the tools that they need to have conversations. Because as much as I can have conversations with strangers on street corners, how much more powerful would that conversation be if it was their family member or their friend and somebody who could continue that conversation long after the initial contact, right? Most of the people that I talk to on a, on a doorstep or on a street corner, I may never talk with again. And so I'm trying to compress all of this information as efficiently as possible to change their worldview in as little time as possible, knowing that I may never talk to them again. They may never talk to a pro-lifer again if I'm not able to uh, put a pebble in their shoe or if I'm not able to give them reason to talk to a pro-lifer again, then maybe this person is going to not only continue on in their pro-abortion worldview, but maybe they're going to influence somebody else to have an abortion. And so it's given us the opportunity to equip an entire army of people that aren't just talking to strangers, but are now talking to their friends and family, especially during COVID, where you weren't even really allowed to talk to strangers. Rarely were you even able to talk to your friends and family. At least your roommates who are in the same same neck of the woods as you, same house, you got a prime prime opportunity to to talk to them. They're not allowed to go anywhere. And so why not give you the tools that you need to be able to have a productive conversation and not be looking for roommates again as soon as the, the pandemic is over and actually have a productive conversation. So really having more and more conversations, having a lot of really bad conversations is what been what's helped me develop a lot of the content that Peter and I um, convey. And and really it's it's been a blessing to be able to communicate that to people across the country and, and around the world. We got people tuning in from Europe, from South America, all over the place um, to get these bite-sized often um, kind of episodes talking through different issues that you might hear different topics that are coming up in different regions of the world that that kind of thing so it's been a lot of fun final question then where can people uh find this podcast download it share with their friends etc yeah so you can you can follow us on any of your favorite podcast catchers whether apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify wherever you do your podcasting find the pro-life guys uh podcast pro-life guys podcast is where you can find us you can find us on our website um podcast prolifeguys.com um, you can find us on youtube prolife guys podcast you can find us all over the place um check it out we we got different episodes coming out every tuesday on apologetics related stuff every thursday we're publishing episodes about cool people that you should be aware of in the pro-life movement um as well as some news related stuff jonathan that you're very well connected with that, that you're reporting on all the time um, so prolifeguys.com, you can find us on your podcast catchers and on YouTube. We're doing more and more stuff on YouTube as we develop more and more video content. So that that's really a growing area for us right now. Cam, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Cameron Cote of the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform and the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this content and this conversation, please head over to lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can find The Van Maren Show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.